That was good. Mm. Appreciate that. All right. Sometimes when we read the scriptures and we picture how things all go down, it isn't always portrayed in the way that we we think it was. And get up and give me your burdens. <laughs> oh my goodness! I gotta stop. <clears throat> well, um, just a few things before we dive into scripture is just want to. Congratulate the New Covenant Fellowship Rockies, our softball team, for a victory. First game of the season, I do believe. Uh, they were well represented, and um, I don't make it out there very often, but wanted to go out there and encourage them. I don't go out there because they try to get me to play, but I keep telling my writer's block will not allow me to even hold a glove in my hand. Um, but... Yeah, they did a great job, and I got a little nervous, though. They're, they had some really good plays, but I got to admit, I got a little nervous when our worship leader dove into first plate, into first base head first. Whew, I thought, there goes our worship for Sunday. But other than that, they did great, and um, it's, a good, it's a good time if you want to go out there and cheer them on. Um, I told the fans, the team doesn't know this, but just as my vote of confidence... I told the fans, when they're losing, you say, go Rockies. When they're winning, you say, go New Covenant Fellowship. Good job. (laughs) Then second, just want to recognize and and thank the volunteers that uh, mulched the flower beds. Look like we ran a little short on the end, but that's to be continued. Um, But thank you for those that served us in this way. It looks just the grounds look um, awesome. They always do. And it's just evidence of the hard work and the good attitudes that go in from the servants of New Covenant Fellowship to bless us with these beautiful grounds. Thank you so much for that. And then just one more thing I wanted to bring to your attention before we dive in is a reminder of the Muslim Awareness Seminar that is going to be hosted here on June 5th. I really want to try to encourage you to come out if you are, if at all possible. I know everybody's busy, but... This couldn't be more relevant or at a relevant time with what's going on in world politics and geography and events. And we need as Christians to really, really wrestle with, well, how would God have me think about uh, Muslims? And are they all terrorists? And, you know, do, do I protect myself? Do I hide? Do I try to witness and reach out? What is... The proper thing. And God really does offer us counsel in this and instruction in this holy word. So I really would love for you to come out and hear that and gain another perspective, especially from the Livermans who have lived among Muslim people. And they, they, they've seen it from angles that we have not, perhaps. So I hope you can come join us for that. Well, if you've watched the news or listened to the radio, you are very aware that we are in the midst of a presidential election. And we are learning many, many new things about the way presidential elections go down. And there's been just a lot of surprises and twists and turns in all of this drama. 
And uh, a lot of things have happened in our nation that nobody can say, oh, I saw that coming because they, they just haven't. But one of the things that I have really learned in these presidential elections, candidates aside, is that there is just this underlying anger in American people. Americans are just angry. They're very, very unsettled. And now the candidates, you know, they can capitalize on that, and they do. But it's just something that's there. And people are really upset at the direction that our nation is taking. The ironic thing is you have, of course, liberals and conservatives, and the liberals are angry that we're not more liberal, and the conservatives are angry in the direction that we're going that we're not more conservative. So you come from two different angles, but what you wind up with is just people are just angry at the direction that our nation is going. And the reason I bring that up is because in this last chapter of Nehemiah, the bottom line is that Nehemiah is angry at the direction that his nation is taking, the direction that they are going, the direction and the the decisions and the choices that both the people and the leaders are making is making him very, very upset. So we are in our very last chapter of the book of Nehemiah, and that would be chapter 13, and we're on our last section that we're going to study. And Nehemiah, as, you, as, we, as we have learned, is not happy at all at what he is finding when he comes back and finds that the reports are true of basically backsliding. God is no longer on the throne of his people's hearts, and it's really beginning to show in the way that they live and the decisions they're going to make. And one of the first things he tackles in this chapter is the the evil of toleration when he finds that Tobiah, one of his enemies at the very beginning of the book, who threatened his very life and tried to, to deter all of the work of Reformation, is living in one of the chambers in the temple of God, no less, which is a direct violation of Scripture. And then the second thing we looked at, another direct violation of God's holy word, is that the people were profaning, profaning the Sabbath and treating it as if it was just another day, as if God had never spoken the words, keep the Sabbath holy. And in this passage, Nehemiah's anger continues to burn because of the direct violation that the people are engaged in regarding their marriages and the way they're running their families. So that's where we're going to camp for actually the next couple weeks. Not going to make it through. This is not the last sermon. I tried to. I thought if I talk really fast, I can get it all in here, but that never works. So we're just going to we're going to split into two and primarily talk about the marriages. It'll all overlap. But next week it'll be marriage and family. But this is just a very, very um, powerful passage. And I think it's extremely relevant to the time that we live in. Now, Nehemiah is angry because of the marriages and the families. And the family is the very foundation of any society, any town, any community. It is the foundational uh, aspect or entity in, in the world, really, among our population. 
You know, when you mess with the family, you're not just whining about a few leaks in the roof. You're talking about the very foundation of society. We have other institutions that God has instituted, such as the government and the church. But the family is what feeds that. And if you have strong families, then you have other strong institutions. If you don't have strong families, then the other institutions also suffer. So this is really something uh, to be upset about. It's very, very dangerous. And he's going to offer offer all kinds of warnings uh, because he's just when you think about families that are that are going astray. Well, you are really messing with the balance of humanity. And so he's taking this very, very seriously. And so this guy Uh, Nehemiah, probably up in years by now, he's angry for God's sake and he's angry for the people's sake because he sees that they are walking closer to the edge of peril. These people that claim to worship God have fallen back into sin and the same sinful patterns of thinking, which leads to the same sinful patterns of living which eventually leads to their demise. And this is the same kind of demise that led them to go into exile in the first place. And so Nehemiah, from his perspective, he's seeing all this. Perhaps some of us can relate to this. I know it is a pattern in Scripture, and I think it's a pattern in Scripture because it reflects the pattern in our own hearts, and that is that we have the same tendency. We have the same tendency to, uh, to, to fall in sin and then be miserable in the filth of our sin and life stinks and we cry out to God. God redeems us and his word is a light to our path and we begin to live according to that. And he elevates us with his grace and his love and life seems to go along pretty well. And then things go often go so well that we forget about God or we begin to ignore him. And he kind of drops a few notches and the things of the world increase. And the next thing you know, we are back on that decline of feeling miserable again in our sin. That's something that as believers, we have to really guard our hearts against. And I know that's pretty much my story, especially when I first became a Christian. I, I did this. I admit it. I mean, there was times where life just could not get any better. It was like as if. Christ was palpable in my very presence in my prayer times. And then there were other times where he was nowhere to be found. I just had, I forsook him. I I didn't really think about him. I wasn't mindful of walking in his ways. But I'm so glad. And even as we talk about family and marriage for the next couple weeks, and I'm just so glad that one of God's attributes is his long suffering. Because I need that to be an attribute of God. Long suffering. He is he's patient. He's not erratic. He doesn't panic when he sees me getting closer to the edge. He is just so persistent and he can see the beginning from the end. He knows how it all turns out. It wouldn't be awesome to to have that assurance If he rules the world and he has that assurance, I know what is going to happen. This doesn't make me panic. I'm I'm not up in arms. I know how this person's going to turn out and how this person's going to turn out. Of course, if you're in Christ, you're already turned out. You're already righteous and perfect. 
But I'm just so glad for his long suffering that he keeps watching. He keeps loving. He keeps disciplining and chastising and forgiving because I know that if he was not long suffering, I'd have been kicked out of the kingdom a long time ago, several times. If it were such a thing, he'd have kicked me out of the kingdom. But we serve a long suffering God. So we want to keep that in mind. We want to keep that in mind whenever we approach God's word. And yeah, kind of get get that lecture from God about here's the way it's supposed to be. And how do you line up with this? And where, where, where are you walking these days? And how are you living? And what is the state of your soul? So this morning, I guess you could say we will get a lecture and hear from God in Holy Scripture. So Nehemiah now Nehemiah is not doing a whole lot of lecturing in this chapter. He's really doing more yelling and screaming and kicking and, and pulling and things like that, as I will read very, very shortly. And these are pretty dynamic verses in Scripture. You know, basically, this, this guy, I mean, uh, he, he starts throwing, possibly throwing punches and getting rough with some of the church folks for the way that they are living and pulls out their hair. Uh, so it's just a beautifully heartwarming, heartwarming set of verses here that we're about to embark on. So let's go ahead and read these. And if I, I've entitled them Fathers Fighting in Foreign Women, I don't know what else to call this passage. So verse 23. In those days, also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. There is a doctrine of the pulling out of the hair during church meetings. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons, or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God and by marrying, marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Now, you've heard that name before. That's Tobiah's buddy. These are the biggest troublemakers there were when Nehemiah came back. So there's Sanballat in the family. Therefore, I chased him. Doctrine of chasing, I guess. Chased him from me. Remember them. Oh, my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood of the Levites. Look where Nehemiah's heart is. Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. I see three primary things in this passage. <clears throat> Excuse me, defiant matrimony, 
the deficient leadership and then the disastrous ramifications of these things. We can't primarily in the defiant, defiant matrimony aspect of this. So first of all, Nehemiah is angry. What's he angry about? He is angry because the men of God, God's men, are marrying godless women. Now, in the text, they are identified by their race or by their nationality, but that's not the problem. That's not what is ruffling Nehemiah's feathers. It's what that nationality means. It's what these people stand for. It's not that they're a foreign race. It's the fact that what they bring into the marriage and they bring into the home is their foreign gods. It's their foreign beliefs. It's their false gods. And what those people stood for in that day was very plain and clear. And these are three of the people, Ashdod, of course, the the Philistines, the Canaanites. These are the people, the very people and tribes that God drove out of the land because their, 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 the harvest was ripe for judgment over their sins. Remember, Abraham didn't take it early on because it just wasn't time. The sins weren't ripe yet, but it was time by the time Joshua got in there. So we're talking about very, very evil, wicked, perverse thinking and people. And, and the totally contrary enemies... Enemies of God's people, not based on race, but based on what they believe. And the men of God are taking these women. They're marrying these women. They're bringing them into their families. This is a a big deal. And Nehemiah knows that it's these kind of arrangements that just not only shipwreck a family, but it's these kind of arrangements that... Put faith, the very foundation of belief in God and and faith and practice at great risk. They are not acting like the people that God has called them out to be. It's kind of like when you you mess with things like this. It's like putting sugar in the tank. It's just not going to work. It's going to come to ruin. You just can't have a society and you can't in particularly be a people of God and function with these kind of decisions. And Nehemiah, uh, he sees this as the beginning of the end if they continue down this path. And I would venture to say he's kind of growing weary of going back to ground zero and starting all over again. So this is where we are in this passage. And I think perhaps we can understand Nehemiah's frustration because his people should know better. And as a matter of fact, they do know better. We're not talking about a people that have never read their Bibles. We're not talking about somebody that has never had some kind of teaching from on high from God as far as here's how things should go and your meaning and your purpose and what marriage is all about. They know these things now. Unfortunately, we are living in what is known as a post-Christian culture. There was a time when Christian Christianity, or what some people call the Judeo-Christian values, they were so predominant in our culture that you didn't have to be a Christian to know what Christians believe, to know how things functioned and how things worked, because it was the, the salt was there, the light was there. And it's just how you, you, you picked up on it. 
Now, unfortunately, we really do have people that are clueless. They don't really know the God of the Bible. They don't really have any idea what marriage and family is supposed to be about. They just pick it up from what they see on TV and from their friends and so forth. And so, yeah, it's different with them. You've know, you got to kind of go back to the beginning and start with them. But these are people that know God's word. I mean, how, it, it was, couldn't have been more than 15 years ago in this passage when these very people were begging Ezra, the scribe and priest, the Billy Graham of his day. They were begging him, please read us God's word, preach God's word. We want more and more. And, and, and six hour sermons were going out and that wasn't even enough. And their lives were being transformed and they were submitting themselves to the Lord and they were loving the results. They were loving the favor of God and the blessing of God and how everything was getting back into order. So and and the books that that Ezra read to them was it was the Pentateuch. Remember, we love the Pentateuch. Yes, we do. We love the Pentateuch. How about you? The first five books of the Bible, which would include. The foundation of society, the foundation of everything, Genesis. So we have a people who claim to know God, believe in God, but they're just not living according to what they say they believe. So there's this conflict in here, and Nehemiah is confronting them with their sin, and rightly so. I remember as I read this passage, as I think about not living according to your convictions and what you believe, it brought me back to... My early days as a Christian and I got saved and I had an idea of what Christian was Christianity. At least I thought I had an idea, but I did. I had a little bit of an idea. You know, my idea was basically you become a Christian, you're supposed to do good. You give up your evil, sinful ways. I knew at least that much. And uh, when I first became a Christian, I still had my my um, my friends that weren't believers. I mean, it was just the culture, you, you, uh, these were my partying buddies. They were my good friends. I mean, not just for partying, but for anything, but primarily partying. Because that's, in my culture, that's kind of the highlight of your life was the party, the next party. I mean, you, you looked forward to it. It was what life was all about. And so I still hung out with these guys. And when I became a Christian, I cut way back on the drinking, but I would still go to the parties and kind of drink casually. Uh, and I would witness. I mean, my life was changing. I would be witnessing to all my party friends and people that I only saw at parties and things like that. I was excited about my faith. And I remember talking to this one guy and, and preaching the gospel to him and and then just closing with this this challenge to be born again and believe in Christ. And I've got a beer in my hand. And after I did it, I just kind of took a few guzzles, you know, like. <sighs> and um, and I, and it was at that time. When when the new man started to lecture the old man and say, good move, good move. You just challenge this guy to transform his life and change his ways. And then as an exclamation point, you guzzle beer like, ah, this is what life is all about. Good move. And I just th- I just thought. Oh, man, I, this isn't working real. This isn't a good combination. I wasn't, I wasn't modeling. I wasn't living out my convictions in that time. And it just, it just kind of didn't mix. And, and it was irresponsible and it was reckless. I'm trying to say to people, get your life together. And then I exemplify a reckless, irresponsible lifestyle. So um, I wasn't living in according to my 
convictions. I was preaching Christ and in essence turning to beer, which is what I kind of lived for in that in that day. Um, it was, a, you know, you head for the mountains. It's the high life. That's how you get up in life. I believe that stuff. Hey, it's advertisement on TV. Um, but the, the question I want to ask before I go any farther is, are we preaching Christ? Now think about it. Are we preaching Christ and then turning to the alternatives that the world offers in our idea of marriage and family? Are we preaching Christ and then turning to the worldly alternatives in our idea of our marriages and our family? Well, that's what Nehemiah was facing. So I think, well, to really understand what he's so upset about, you've you got to understand what it's, re- it's supposed to look like. I mean, you, you can't get mad about somebody going um, off track unless you really see how the track is supposed to originally look. Because what can happen, and I think is really is what's happening in our culture, is that the broken, if that's all you see, it's the norm. You don't know any better. And it's hard to get mad at the brokenness when you, you, you can't even compare it to the original version of what it's supposed to look like. So I'm going to spend some time uh, looking at the original version, if you will, in Genesis of marriage. And um, I think it's worth it as I thought about this. I said, well, we talk, we've, we've been exposed to marriage a lot. Most people know how it's supposed to work. And then I thought, I don't, I'm not so convinced. I think that even within this conservative church, we need some brushing up. And there may be people that just need to hear it again, but there may be people in here who really don't know, or really have not heard that God actually has this, this beautiful pattern for how things should fall into place regarding marriage. So we're going to spend some time looking at that. So we'll go back to the original, the early chapters of Genesis. I'm not going to read it all. Many of you are familiar with it. I will only quote the scriptures that are the most pertinent. But I am counting on the fact that many of you already know the general story of Genesis and how things transpired. So let's think about creation. And God is speaking things by fiat. He is speaking things into existence and Everything that he creates is followed up by the remark, the conclusion, the commentary. It is good. And so the light is good. Separating the land from the water is good. Light and darkness is good. The illuminaries and then the vegetation is good. The little critters running around and the sky and the sea and the land. It's all good. And then man, the pinnacle of creation, it is good. And then all of a sudden, you're just, you're just delighted, it's perfect, it's wonderful. And then all of a sudden, you read this one little section in Scripture where God says, it's not good. I mean, you got all this good, and then all of a sudden, you just stop, and it, stop right here, it's not good. So what's the thing that is not good? Well, it's in 2.18, Genesis 2.18. The Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So Adam's all by his lonesome. And 
is purposely written in this way, it kind of sets us up, doesn't it? Like, oh, you, you repeat this thing, it's, it's headed in a certain direction, and all of a sudden, we find out that something isn't in order. There's still a little bit of chaos out there, if you will, that needs to be brought into the submission of God's creative power. And so he leaves it like that for greater emphasis. And you almost feel Adam's pain. I mean, it's, everything is wonderful and good. But when he goes to name all of those animals and just he doesn't have anybody for himself. So you're reading along. You're feeling his pain. He's lonely. He's he's really bummed out the way things are. But then, as God always does, he comes to his rescue and, and he creates for Adam, of course, as a part of his plan all along. He's basically saying, I'm not finished yet. It's going to be good, but it's not yet. And all along, he makes this beautiful, suitable helper, this helpmate um, who compliments him, made to be for him. They are co-equals, co-image bearers. They're a team. They work, to, to work together like the right hand and the left hand to bring up. Uh, um, to bring to pass God's will for the glory of God, created each with certain skills and abilities that complement one another. And they work wonderfully together, not so good one apart. And the world desperately needs them both. The whole foundation of the plan of God is based on what God is saying right here. And the world needs them both. And the world needs them to come together and to be one. And to be a team and to have a unified front and a, and, and a unified mindset, of course, the unity is based on the teaching of Christ. That's the emphasis here. So he's, he's longing for this mate. Now, the details of this is that God um, gives Adam two tablespoons of NyQuil or Benadryl. He, he puts him out. He sedates him in some kind of way. So Adam is absolutely out and he takes a rib from his side. And from that rib, he fashions Eve. Verse 21. The Lord God calls a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with the flesh. So God is the great surgeon, the great physician. Is he not? So Adam wakes up. And uh, what does God do? It's really quite fascinating here because God kind of plays different roles in this little passage. And there's a sense in which he plays the role of the father. And just as in our ceremonies, though that's changing as well in our culture, our ceremonies, when it comes to holy matrimony, the father traditionally brings his daughter, the bride, brings her and presents her to the man. And what does God do? Uh, verse 22, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So he is presenting her to her husband. So he's kind of playing the fatherly role. So they don't have parents. They're created mature. And so God is playing the parent there. And in a sense, he's kind of playing the pastor as well. He is officiating this ceremony because he makes this pastoral announcement or declaration when he says in verse 24, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So he is the 
he's uh, kind of like the pastor here officiating this. And did he say those words? Well, this is Moses writing about it. So can I say that God actually this was like an actual wedding ceremony? I can't go that far, but I can say that that's absolutely what was the idea of what was taking place there. And that's why Moses is writing about it. So uh, very powerful here. And yes, the first wedding, they got married in the nude. Now, I see what some of y'all are thinking. It's not a good idea. This was before the fall. OK, this is before the fig leaves. The, I don't, don't don't let that plant that seed take plant in your little rebellious minds. Say, ah, that's a new idea. We're going to have to bring that tradition back. It's right there in the Bible. There's no need for that, because that again, that was the, in a time of innocence. That's not. That's not coming again until Christ's return. So for now, we need the fig leaves. Actually, what we really need are the animal skins, the covering, which is symbolic of covering our loss of innocence, covering our guilt, covering our shame. And the Lord made coverings for Adam and Eve. The fig leaves uh, didn't offer enough privacy for the private. So the Lord rescues them and redeems them in that way and covers their their shame. It's all right there in the Bible plain as day so um then what happens what is adam's response to all of this verse 23 then the man said this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man the hebrew scholars i never took hebrew i did take greek um but the hebrew scholars say this is actually hebrew poetry it's written Directly in the form of a poem. And some other scholars point out the fact that it's not only Hebrew poetry, but it's written in such a way that it even has, they say, it's got a little rhythm to it. So they think this might even be a song here. That maybe Adam sung these words. The interesting thing is that surely these are not the first words of man spoken on earth. But they are the first recorded words in Holy Scripture. This is the, these are the only words we know that man said. So the first words. So it's a poem here. And possibly even a song that had a little beat to it. And so that answers the lifelong question that many of us have. What? Why do women love poetry so much? There you have it. It's right in Scripture. And, 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 you know, Eve is like, does that mean you're asking me to marry you? Yes. The answer is yes. Is that a ring? No, it's a poem. But it's still, it, it's a way. You see, she just loves the poetry. So, guys, look, if you're, if you're single, you're tired of being alone. Either write one or memorize a really good poem. Keep it with you. And when you think is that 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 person is the one you want to be the one, you pull it out and you recite it and you just see what happens. See what God does with that. It's all right here in the Bible. But if, if that doesn't work, plan two is you up the level. Now, we all know that ladies love to be sung to. I mean, we learned that in the little rascals with darling alfalfa, the crooner with his hair sticking up. He just sings these love songs and Darla can't. She's just beside herself. It works in real life. Uh, so, guys, you know, if you're tired of being lonely, learn one of those love songs. 
maybe Elvis, not the yay nothing but a hound dog when that might not work. But, you know, love me tender, love me sweet. Sing it. Take it out. The one you think is the one and, and see what God does with that. It's all biblical. It's just right in here. We're reading it right out of God's word. So anyway, what we find here more seriously is the threefold process of marriage what it's supposed to be in this very, very early pronouncement in Genesis. Based on God's words, the first thing is the man shall leave his mother and his father. That's kind of the, the first step that points us in the direction. And then the second thing is that he should cleave to his wife. And then the third thing is that once they've left and then they're cleaving, the, the, the final result is this beautiful oneness. That's the goal. That's the result of the leaving and the cleaving. Because that's how couples glorify God. That's the, the unity is a reflection of the Holy Trinity. And this love and this unity within two human beings that there's so much respect and adoration that they function as one is, is what God wants in marriage. That should be the goal of every marriage. It's not just the, the lovey-dovey stuff. It's, it's the oneness. It's having that unified. And so we, we want to think even in our marriages, well, maybe we get along okay, but are we one? That's, that's the ultimate goal, is that oneness. We need all three of these things in order for marriage to work right. We need to leave before we cleave. If we don't leave before we cleave, well, that's going to get messy. Talk a little bit about that. And, um, and we don't want to, like we do in our culture, we don't want to do the, the oneness stuff without the cleaving, which is the commitment. We're, we got it all messed up. It's, we've just chopped it up and it's all out of order today. Now it's, well, let's just become one. And then let's just see if we might cleave. That might, that might lead to a commitment. So it's no wonder that our families and marriages are in the state that they are. But this is a threefold process. This is the, the model here. And there's just a, one thing I do want to point out is if you'll notice that it is the man that um, is God speaking to. A man shall leave. A man shall cleave. He is to take the initiative. Uh, God holds him responsible, just like when Eve ate the fruit first, who does God go to? Adam. There's this responsibility this, um, of what the Bible would call federal headship on the man's shoulders to be the one to take the initiative, to be the one who is responsible, to be proactive, not passive. And how sad it is a few weeks ago to find that, that the pressure that our society puts on young men to where they're, they're confused. They don't know their role because they try to take initiative. They try to, to be kind and they get shot down and they get called certain names. And so there's just all this confusion. But there's nothing wrong. If you want to please God, then this is the way to do it and not go to society and look for their approval or all the different worldly alternatives of what it means to be a man and how to have a marriage and a family. We go back to God's word. That's where we find the, the answers. That's where we are put back into the right order. Scripture has the man taking the risks primarily. Responsibility. You know, so a man has to have... The courage both to succeed and to fail. To fail, yeah. 
There's times where we're going to need to take the courage and the risk to offer leadership or to take an initiative. There's no guaranteed success in these things, but we're still called to do it. You know, so take the initiative. That's exactly what I did um, with Lisa. I took the initiative, really took the initiative, and basically told her one day, today we begin a relationship that will end in marriage. See, I didn't even leave any room for failure in that statement, did I? That's the way to do it. You can get the rest of the story from Lisa. You think I'm kidding. That's the honest truth. She's nodding her head. Not very romantic, but it... I don't know. Still, no, no poem, no singing. That came later. So, you know, God wants men to act like men. And, you know, to put it bluntly, sometimes we've got to put our helmet on. And we've got to put our mouthpiece in. And we've got to put our cup on. And we've got to go and take a risk. We've got to be, be courageous and fulfill the things that God has designed us to fill. And if we fail, God will use it to make us stronger. So it's and then now think about that. How is the man taking the initiative initially by leaving? What is the whole concept of the leaving that first step? You're leaving your mother and your father. This is the first step in essence of becoming a man. What does that mean? Well, you're beginning to take personal responsibility over your own life. There's times where you can't do that. You're young. You get a little older and a little older, but you still need mom and dad and that God has them there for you. But you reach a certain age or level of maturity and you are supposed to begin to take responsibility for yourself. You're supposed to look out for what you're going to need today and for tomorrow. You're supposed to start figuring out how you're going to pay your bills and pay for, say, for instance, your own cell phone or your own car insurance or your own car taking all these little baby steps of independence the whole idea is that you're going to leave god doesn't want you to stay dependent upon mom and dad forever because that's that's uh feeding into this um prolonged childhood that we are seeing in our culture today you gotta you gotta feel what it's like to carry your own weight so there's that transition that takes place. And so, you know, if you're, you're 40 years old and mom is still baking your cookies and putting them in your Star Wars lunchbox and washing and folding your Star Wars jammies, you might not be ready. You might not be ready for a relationship because God has you taking responsibility. Now, think about it. If you can't even care for yourself, isn't this a scriptural principle? If you can't even care for yourself, then how in the world are you going to care for others? If mom is still the one that wakes you up in the morning to make sure you get to school on time or, you know, I'm talking about people that are uh, old enough to know better or to do this on their own. If if mom is still the one that's directing your schedule and keeping you on track because you're not taking personal responsibility, you didn't set your alarm clock or you're not listening to it and mom is still your alarm clock or mom is handing you your devotional book that's already open to the passage you're supposed to read, she's doing life for you and taking responsibility for you, then you might not be ready for the next step. You haven't finished leaving. The idea is that you are becoming responsible. You know how to make your own choices. You are owning your own God. You're not living on your parents' convictions and their doctrinal knowledge. 
that they have gained through trial and error and their own personal effort through their life. Now you take your, put your own personal effort in these things and you feel the weight of what it means to be a man, what it means to be in charge, what it means to be responsible for the things that will eventually come up under you. Marriage is for men, not boys. And when we try to put boys in that position, it's a mess. You know, having a baby doesn't make you a man. Caring for that child, taking responsibility for that child, that's what makes you a man. Or just having a good-looking chick by your side is not what makes you a man. It's caring for that person. It's the adoration. It's the cherishing. Personal responsibility. I'm going to look after you and take responsibility for you. These are the things that... Make for manhood. A boy with a man's responsibilities is a recipe for disaster. And we sure see a lot of that today. You know, so just thinking about this, you're a single lady and there, this guy comes up and he's got his poem. Or he's got his song. You know, you want to think about, is this guy ready to take care of me? Is it just all surface stuff? Or can he actually do it? Can he pull it off? Because I'm going to need... If I'm going to leave the, the protection of mom and dad, then I need somebody else to protect me and care for me. That's something to think about. You want, might you might, might want to ask him, uh, that's a nice song, but where do you live? Now, there is such a thing as staying with mom and dad and you're being proactive because you're, you're doing that to establish yourself better. You don't want to leave the house too early out of rebellion just because you're sick and tired of listening to mom and dad because then you're going to scrimp you're not going to have much money you want to establish yourself and your parents will be there for you to help you do that but slowly you want to take responsibility over your own life the idea is you're being proactive to leave there's a difference between that and just freeloading and procrastinating and just refusing to grow up now look how important just this idea of leaving is our society's forgotten all about it. I mean, when I was um, young, I just couldn't even wait. Actually, I didn't wait. Now, you don't want to hear that part of it. Anyway, uh, the, um, I couldn't wait to be on my own and show myself in the world I can do this. You know, I, I'm responsible enough. I can keep a job. I can hold these things down. I can take care. And I wanted to, my, my girl to know I can protect you. I can care for you. So following this model of life um, means that we learn to depend on God or ultimately ourself. And we no longer let mom be our bread and butter, but we are our own bread and butter. Because God's going to hold us accountable to run our own household. Ladies have to leave as well. And... Uh, Look to there, if, if that's your intention and you get married, well, you've got to leave mom and dad and your husband's your new priority, if it comes to that. And I see even today, even within Christian homes, I see uh, the tension where uh, one of the spouses has not left, but yet they're married. But they're, they're at mom and dad's more, or mom and dad is their main priority, and the spouse is just left waiting we're on hold, and it, that wears the relationship down. Put this in perspective. Think about it. In Genesis, when God brought Eve to the man, did he know that that meant that Adam's 
priorities and his thoughts are going to shift a little bit. He just brought somebody new into Adam's life. He knows that Adam's going to, based on his response of, whoa, he knows that Adam's going to be preoccupied with this woman that he created for him. And that they're going to start doing life together. And yet God's not threatened by that. He's not the overprotective parent. No, I got to keep them all to myself. He's saying, I want you to go out. Matter of fact, that's why I made each of you to go out together and take dominion over this earth. You do it together. There's no threat here. There's no uh, control. And a lot of parents, by the way, something else to keep in mind is uh, parents, we got to let them go and not be overprotective and not try to control our kids. And that means sometimes letting them make mistakes. We've got to let these new married couples learn their own way. It's part of life. That's how we did it, many of us, and not want to stay in control. So Scripture tells us both, honor your mother and father, but also the same God says, leave your mother and father. We've got to find the balance. But one thing is for sure, the priority in marriage is your spouse. It cannot become any clearer. And if that's not our priority in our relationships, they need to be tweaked. And we need to listen to these lectures from God's word. Secondly, we see, and now that I'm out of time, point two, um, a man is to cleave to his wife. He's to take her in. He is to make her and they are to make each other, of course, the main priority now he protects her. He cherishes her. He's ready to do that because he left. He can be on his own. And, of course, the family plays a part of this. The church plays a part of this. So, ladies, if the guy came and he recited that poem and he sang that song, but you're still not sure that he has what it takes, uh, ask your folks. Especially your father, if you have one, or a brother, if you have one, who isn't all emotionally involved in these these relationships. Get some wisdom, and or from the church family. And I've mentioned before, if um, the dad's not present in your life and you need some wisdom, there are plenty of, of guys here that would love to play that role in your life to help you along this way. So don't feel God has ways of providing these safeguards for people, no matter where you are. So it's a a cleaving. Once you make that decision that you're meant for each other and you take that commitment, then you just you cling together and never let go. That's the idea of marriage. You cling together. You make that decision. It's forever. You never let go through thickness and thin. Our culture says that marriage is based primarily on feelings. And the Bible says, no, no, no. Marriage is more than feelings. Feelings are wonderful Emotions come from God. God has emotions. He wants us to joy, enjoy them. But marriage is not just a bunch of mushy feelings. It is a commitment. It is a covenant. It is an institution. So when we make that commitment, we're not saying, I pledge to feel this way about you forever. We all know that's not going to happen. Feelings change. You're saying, no, I am pledging to you to take care of you. And to be here for you forever, whether I feel like it or not. Because there will be times when you don't feel like it. Commitments, marriages don't last that are based on feelings. How could they? How could they? 
We all have ups and downs. We're too finicky and wishy-washy. The whole idea of marriage is that this is a permanent institution. Now, this is the original. It's a guarantee. And when you go into a relationship, anything, not even just marriage, but that word guarantee means something, doesn't it? Like if you know, if your money is absolutely guaranteed, that means that in this investment or whatever, there's really not a risk. So you're not walking on pins and needles. Today, relationships are walking on pins and needles because they're just wondering when my spouse or my boyfriend or girlfriend is going to find somebody else that makes them feel even better than I do. Then you're out and I'm by myself again. It's a commitment. There's no need to live in fear when you put your lifetime guarantee onto it. It's something we can ask ourselves in the midst of our relationships. Am I committed? Do I still carry that lifetime guarantee based on the oaths and the covenant that I made at the altar? Does my spouse know that I am in this for good? It changes the way we interact with one another. And then lastly, the idea of becoming one flesh. You leave, you cleave, you become one. It's, it's a covenant marriage. You're bound together as one. No longer individuals. All those decisions that you made by yourself, perhaps when you were independent, setting up life so you can always get your way, it's gone. Now it's we want to get our way. You want to be able to bear, be personally responsible, but personally responsible to do things together. Personally responsible to consider the other person. Decisions are no longer made uniformly or unilaterally. It is uniformly. So, yeah, Nehemiah is pulling out here because the foundation of the society of the people of God is at risk When they don't come into marriage with this kind of perspective, particularly in their case of oneness. How can a Jew and a Philistine or a Moabite or an Ammonite be one in holy matrimony when they serve different gods? When they raise their children different, when they have different practices, something's going to happen. And the obvious is that it's not going to be a good turnout. Otherwise, he wouldn't be getting all upset. If it worked out to where you could just marry anybody you wanted and it all turned out happily ever after, there would be no threat. But he knows that's not the way it turns out. Sin is too powerful for that. Marriage done rightly propagates the faith. It enhances the faith. It spreads the faith. It communicates the faith. It makes statements about the faith. It makes statements about God's word. And it spreads deep and establishes these things. He knows that the kids of these parents won't have an idea of what original marriage looks like. Just like we face today. Because mom and dad didn't do it right. Or according to scripture. So this is just kind of back to the original. Back to the basics. Of marriage 101 maybe. But I think it's something that we need to hear because otherwise, how do we know what to be upset about? And let me just say that I know that um, the, the, the state that today's marriage is in and, and the direction that our culture seems to be going, uh, it can be exhausting thinking about trying to hold on to this thing that seems so outdated and so traditional and old fashioned. But we can't. 
We can't just say, okay, let's just let society define what love is and romance and sexual relations and how family's supposed to. Let's just, it's a hopeless fight. We can't, we can't throw in the towel of this. We just can't because it's what society's based on. It's giving up. It's apathy. And it's not good for us. It's not good for anybody. And we want to dig in there and by God's grace, commit ourselves to leaving, to cleaving and becoming one. May God bless the preaching of his word.